Welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 12. I'm Joel Payne from Resound Worship, and this is a podcast to equip and inspire grassroots songwriters serving their local church. We'll be dissecting classic songs, exploring songwriting technique in the workshop, and interviewing songwriters, theologians, pastors, and more. Well, we're halfway through March and hopefully many of you are getting stuck into the March challenge, which is writing songs for Easter Tide. But in this episode, we're going to focus all of our attention uh, on a conversation that I had a few days ago with songwriter, worship leader and many other things, Surinaldi. Surinaldi, it's great to welcome you to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast. Thank you. Very good to be here. Now, I think um, I was wondering what our our listeners will know you as mainly, because I did, sort of, I did a little bit of research, as I like to do for these interviews, mm. and I've just found so many different labels for Sue Rinaldi. Yes. Singer, songwriter, <laughs> worship coordinator, label manager, communicator, writer, creative consultant... Uh, etc. I mean, what? How do Which you do is, all those it's things? It's very ironic because I've always hated labels. Oh, <laughs> or I've always hated one label. Yeah. So, in an effort to try not to label myself, I think I've ended up with just loads, loads. of labels. Yeah, it's very ironic. Isn't but what it? does that mean? So, in terms of your kind of your your everyday life, are you kind of bouncing between different things? Have you got quite a kind of a mixture? Yes. Yes, I, I'm probably a similar to kind of Tigger, really. Right. I just bounce from one thing to another. Can we see what's happening? Uh, yeah. Yeah, very eclectic, but that's my character. I think I've always been like that. I've always just naturally not fitted into one box, one pattern, one mode of thought. I've always been very, very eclectic and very random, really. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think, I suppose a lot of our listeners, and certainly I will uh, know you best from your songwriting and worship leading, Um and I guess that sort of, that goes back a fair way now, doesn't it? And did you um, start out when you know, when you started out writing songs? Did you imagine you'd become a, a worship leader? Were you a, sort of a Christian songwriter at the outset, or how did that develop? Well, it developed when I was about eight years old, which was you know a little bit back now. I'm not going to say how many years, and I was just fascinated with music. And I was fascinated with Top of the Pops. And in those days, it was black and white. Yeah. And uh, so I used to watch Top of the Pops on my black and white television. And I was just fascinated with the singer-songwriters. People like Joan Armour Trading, mm. um, who would just stand up with a guitar. And I just loved that whole process of communicating through music, through lyrics. And so at the age of eight, I just persuaded and badgered and went on to my parents to buy me a guitar. And so they bought me a tiny kid's guitar that was the colour of Caramac chocolate, which has just come back, I see, into the shops. I see. This kind of, it has. Yeah. This kind of weird orangey kind of thing. But it was my guitar, and I used to just play, mess around, and I literally just used to sit in my room and write songs, and I didn't have any knowledge of God, no knowledge of the church. My parents weren't Christians, never sent to church, so... God never featured in anything. It was just me writing songs about love uh, yeah. from an eight, nine-year-old's perspective. <laughs> um, things in the day. My first song was Purple Rock because I was really influenced by T-Rex. Okay. And those kind of psychedelic, yeah. poetic 
couldn't understand the lyrics, but had a great melody. Yeah. You know, Telegram Sam, Telegram Sam, Metal Guru, Metal Guru, is it you? But I was fascinated by the the poetry, but the melody. So I thought I could write a song, and it was called Purple Rock. Mm. Cool. Yeah, whatever Purple Rock is. So that, that was my very early beginnings. Yeah just obsessed with music and poetry so what was that so then the journey that then takes you from that through to writing songs which are being sung in the church at large mm. um or leading worship you know with quite mm. a high profile mm. how did you get to that stage then well i guess i did it because i loved it and that's quite different now because yeah. you know if you grow up and you see the big worship movements you see the big worship conferences you you know that already sets a template that now is a lot easier to work towards because yeah. it's there in front of you but in those days <laughs> we didn't have a template no and and, yeah. and we didn't have the worship industry we didn't have contemporary worship so in many respects it was very um innovative it was like an adventure, but you didn't quite know where the end game could possibly be. So I just grew up, as I say, writing songs, loving music. And then an In the Name of Jesus team from Youth for Christ with Clive Calver, Graham Kendrick before yeah. he wrote Shine, Jesus Shine. Wow. They came into my secondary school and suddenly I found out about God, right? and Jesus and church. So as a teenager, it freaked the life out of me yeah. because I just thought this is weird yeah but a lot of my friends actually became christians yeah and uh i didn't really know what any of that was about but they were my friends and so they then wanted to meet as youth so in came like the early i don't even know if songs of fellowship was around but praise choruses yeah this is the day this is the day therefore the sound of living waters that kind of yeah. yeah and they needed somebody to play guitar right to their songs so I was kind of on the way to understanding what this Christian life was about, but I hadn't committed. But anyway, they asked me to come in and lead their praise. And that's so I did. Yeah. And that that was my introduction into um, God, church, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I went. I belonged before I believed. Yeah. And so I I led. <laughs> I led their praise. <laughs> It's not a blueprint. It's very kind of much, this is very nonconformist, yeah. which, which gives you an idea of, of what I'm like now, because it was a very nonconformist beginning. And uh, so after a year, I took the step of saying, actually, I do believe I can trust my life to this person, Jesus, to this figure, God, not quite sure I understand all about it, but it's changed my friend's life and I see and feel something quite dynamic because I was right in the middle leading the praise. That's amazing. Seeing a little bit of the geography of the presence of God and the geography of, of now what I can put words to, yeah. the temple dynamics, the holiness of God, the presence of God. I didn't know the language, but I felt the reality and I was a part of it. Has that given so, you a, a particular sort of um, sense of of what it's like for the unbeliever, the non-believer, mm. the not yet believer in a in a worship gathering, and how you, as a songwriter or leader, actually are drawing them in? Yeah, totally, because that's where I was. So I, I, I probably have never seen again that that kind of box, that demarcation zone between Christian, non-Christian. Now I know there's some very real decisions 
But actually, I've always felt that we're all on a journey. And even if you've said, I decide to follow Jesus, well, that might not even change your life. Whereas someone who's just tasted a little bit of the presence of Jesus, Mm -hmm. their life may have actually been more changed. So I try not to think in demarcation zones. I like to talk about shared environments. Mm. I like to write songs that have a language that is eclectic, poetic, but still theological, but updated language that, that doesn't kind of deny the truth, but actually allows more people to understand it. So that's always fueled my writing, my communicating, always. My songwriting, my article writing, my conversation. And I, for me, that's more exciting. I I was looking through some of your, um, you know, kind of back catalogue um, uh-huh. f- before we chatted. And um, I noticed that I think, in you know, you're talking about some of this kind of poetic and the fact that you as a person you kind of want to you don't want to be boxed into the mm-hmm. to it kind of a, a, a clear definition you know you this must be christian or songs must be about this or and so on and mm-hmm. actually quite a long time before a lot of people certainly the evangelical world were catching on to the idea of things like justice and world issues and things mm-hmm. in in songs i was i was going back and i um found um I will speak out for those who have yes, no voices yes, with yes. the craziest guitar solo you've ever yeah. heard. Yeah. It's a brilliant recording. Um, but also um, Carry the Fire, which was yep. a kind of mid, I think, early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, and Cry that's Mercy. Just, yeah, and that's a long time before mm. quite a lot of people were, were, mm. were, were had caught up, had kind of come a, a, mm. alive or woken up to the idea that actually mm. themes like justice and, and suffering and, and yeah. so on needed to be in our songs. Mm. Was that... I think sometimes, to me, that's quite a prophetic role, in a sense, mm. for you within the church. Yeah, And, and it's that, not always comfortable to, to do that, no, is it? No, it isn't. And I think, again, it goes back to the lack of template. Yeah. A lot of what comes out of me is just genuine, real-life stuff, like the whole thing about justice. Because when I was growing up, um, I, I just had this phrase, because I, I observed things, and I always thought, that's not fair. That isn't fair. So I've, for some reason, I've just grown up with a keen sense of observation uh, and also a keen sense of fairness. And that's not fair. And things like um, prejudice or um, discrimination between male and... F- just, just simple things like, why did I have to do the washing up? My brother didn't have to. Mm. That, so from a very, very everyday home incident, it, it, it was bigger than that for me. So... This lack of template probably just allowed me to develop, you know, and and so I just developed with the things that meant something to me, with the things that I observed, and that informed my songwriting. And then as I kind of grew in life and grew in years, I just kind of went from the the youth group at school (laughs) to the youth church that we built, because nobody wanted us, a bunch of total unchurched teenagers who suddenly found that actually there was something dynamic about God. Yeah. So I grew up into the youth church, and obviously then I became, I don't know what they called me, the song leader. Yeah. There was no phrases. <laughs> there, was no, there was no model, yeah. And then, then I did a lot of concerts and had a band and travelled around Southampton where I was living. And then I joined Heartbeat. Yeah. So it was like step by step by step by step by step. It wasn't like step one to step ten. And you didn't and have a big I, plan set out no, in front of you? No, no, I just followed each step and followed my heart and followed kind of the cultural waves as well. And then in the 80s, I guess I was part of a band that we were 
as people would call us, contemporary worship pioneers. And yeah. We wrote songs for church, songs for young people, because that's what we were involved with, and songs for Top of the Pops, because yeah. we, we cared so much about people who were put off by the church as they viewed it, the image of church or the language of church. So we just wanted to write songs that people understood. So, you know, Tears from Heaven, we marketed really well. Yeah. That was unknown in those days, whereas now in the 90s and the 2000s, it's it's obvious, but people thought, oh, you're marketing too much. It got on top of the pops, audience of 8 million just on that one program. Amazing. So it, it it's never been a, a kind of a, a career path. Yeah. Which I think actually when you look at the worship industry now, it's quite different because there is that template. Yeah. It's like, well, I want to be like Carrie Job. I want to be like Jesus Culture. I want to be like... Because now the, the, the industry has developed. Yeah. And I understand that, and I'm not knocking it in any way, but I think it's taken a little bit of the um, adventure yeah. and maybe a bit of the prophetic out of it because you're not following an unknown path. You're just fitting into a model. You're following a path yeah. that you can actually see. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just going back to that... Um, I, heartbeat so that you know you had that that one particular song and like you say I, I know there was quite you there's quite a lot of went into the marketing campaign and come, saying come on we can get a song on top of the pops and actually that was f- for you as a band I know it was met with a certain amount you know some people loved it and and but there's also a certain amount of flat came with it wasn't there yeah. as well oh yes because it was such a this intersection of the mm. I don't know the secular and the sacred mm. Mm. and the idea of an industry and using secular marketing tool that was that was a difficult time yes and that's a very good way to put it the intersection and we arrived on that intersection as one of the first people that did it in such a a media and church friendly way but at that point there were trouble spots yeah for example we did a tour with um national child line raising money for the national child line so we did a whole tour and uh we had every night like an auction. Yeah. And people like at that time, it was Steffi Graf, Martina Navratilova. They all donated. So we were already reaching out to people and raising money. And so every night of the tour, we did a raffle and people bought tickets yeah. to go towards National Child Line. And we got so much criticism for... For the raffle? Can, yeah. Wow. Christians and gambling. Yeah. So a lot of what we did... <laughs> You know, I don't know if people would even think about it now. Yeah. And then when Delirious, they, you know, 10 years after us did, did their singles, you know, they did exactly the same as us. Yeah. Buy this, buy this. But it was 10 years later. So maybe, you know, the world was more ready for that intersection. It was a bit more familiar. And I suppose there was something more of a kind of Christian music industry around, wasn't there? Even though still they kind of, yes. they still pioneered things. And I know they had a big impact um, I know Delirious actually quite, had quite a big impact in the States in terms of a model for a kind yes. of contemporary Christian music industry, didn't they? But mm. you're, you're obviously quite involved now. You know, you work with Elevation um, as label manager, A&R. What does A&R stand for? <laughs> it's one of these phrases you always hear. I know. <laughs> it sounds it's important. A, it, it's very important. No, it's artist and repertoire. Yeah. So really, you just get to look after the people on your label and the song content of their albums, yeah. their songwriting, and uh, the, the song that you, songs that you generally have within your writers. Yeah. So that's it. 
So tell me a little bit about um, Elevation, because, you know, we've, we've been talking a bit about the industry and, you know, there's, there was big moves in the last few years mm. where um, Kingsway and Integrity and Capital Records and so on. And these are huge, mm. you know, kind of powerhouses, aren't they? And I guess Elevation, as a result, has become something more of a kind of a, a more of a niche or more of a, I, I don't know, where, where do you see Elevation sort of fitting? <laughs> is there a niche? Is there a particular desire as a label to, to do, a, to do to cut, sort of plough your own mm. furrow? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it, it's, it's a 360 degree circle because I'm still leading worship. I'm still making albums. I'm still meeting. I'm still writing. <clears throat> so to actually be part of the industry as well is actually quite challenging. But also it's very informative as well because I tend to see things from all perspectives. Mm. But Elevation, basically, they, um, I mean, the history, I, I don't know too much, but they've always had the ICC studios in Eastbourne. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. And that, yeah, Every, we've, and so, <laughs> we've all been there. I know, <laughs> and it's still there, but it's been bought over by other people. But yeah. um, that had a great link to Spring Harvest. Yeah. And Spring Harvest and Elevation and other things like Song Solutions, which is the publishing company, and LPO, which is a, a site, house party site in France, yeah. they are all elements of a mothership called Memorialife, yeah. which is a charity. So you've got this amazing organisation that has lots of different outlets. Identity is about serving the church and equipping the church, mm. but also it does more than that. It it communicates God. It it brings resources. LPO in France, the um, the holiday site. Mm. You have all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and areas there. So it it it's quite um, widespread in its in its meeting with people and it's connecting with people. So Elevation is the the record company mm. within Memorialife. And I guess we've just built up, you know, we're not like big and major, but what we do is we work on relationship. Yeah. That, that's, that's the large thing. So we have, we've had some great people on the label and, and a lot of great, you know, children's and all age workers, you know, Nick and Becky Drake, yeah. Doug, Doug Hawley, Big Ministries, uh, you know, Trevor Ranger. But also we've had a lot of the Spring Harvest Project. And a lot of the artists and writers like Pete James, Kathy Burton. And then we distribute for artists like Jesus Culture and mm. all their artists and United Pursuit. So we've got a, quite a lot now of relational yeah. networks. And we're doing something quite important this year with Samaritan's Purse, who um, sponsored Spring Harvest, the event this year. And also the Operation Shoebox. So we're working alongside them to deliver songs for Christmas to feed into their schools, Operation Shoebox. Oh, so suddenly, and, and that's all about songwriting, very widespread. So from a very relational hub, there's networking, there's, there's quite a lot of influence. Mm. And, and I guess I get involved with a lot of the writers and encourage the songwriting. I look after the whole Spring Harvest new songs and songbook in terms of you know, what new songs should we highlight at the event? What 60 songs should we now put into the songbook? Mm. I get involved with the production and co-production and looking after albums like the Spring Harvest Live Worship. So it, it's quite a mix. Mm. And uh, as I say, we're not looking to be the monster that ate the world. Yeah. But we are, 
But we are looking to work within our own parameters in yeah. a real way, but a relational way. Yeah, and part and get, of that network that you've described of those different kind of expressions mm, of what memory life does. Mm. And get involved with people and get yeah. involved with nurturing people, people's giftings, uh, songs, albums, music, resources, to not just resource the church, because sometimes we can be so resourced, we don't know what to do with it, uh, but to equip the church so that there's real growth not yeah. copying, but real growth and real output and real um, variety and real diversity. Yeah. So it, w- it's interesting. Yeah. And so in your that kind of A&R side of things, um, I know a lot of our listeners will be people who write songs and, you know, some of them, they may well have even sent you some songs or they mm. certainly send them off to so on. They just think, you know, I've got this song, I'd love to get yeah. it published. And it can feel when you're... Um, when you're sort of right at the beginning, like there's no way in, there are no doors even to push, you can't really work it out. And it seems to be mm. a sort of a, a distant, mysterious world. And and yet I know, I mean, I, I, I get sent a few songs by people and it's hard enough going through those and, and responding to them. I guess, I suppose I, I want to ask kind of two things around that, which is in a sense, what are you, what are you really looking for when you've got your eye out for people? And what, what can you, what can you say that's helpful to the people who are kind of wondering how they might make that next step if it, if it's a kind of appropriate thing for them to do. Mm, well, I still get a lot of songs. So I, I get a lot of songs sent to me. And the first thing I find out is who sent them. Because how you, how you value them, how you um, estimate them, how you judge, how you critique them, I think sometimes depends on the person yeah. and who they've written it for. So I first of all try and think, right, who is this person? Where do they write? Where do they want this song to go? Because there's no point me, you know, critiquing it for the next Jesus Culture album if that's not where they want that song to go. So I think sometimes you have to get in the mind of the writer and who they're writing for and where they imagine their song can best fit. Mm. But then once you've um, looked at that, I tend to like to listen to the song many times. I always like to see the lyrics. So I listen to the song and always think about melody. You know, is this a, a nature trail with a mysterious path? Or is it, is it somewhere where you start and you have an idea of where you're going and when you're going to end? doesn't mean everything needs to be boring. But if the song is really like a mystery tour, by the end, it's confusing. So I look for format. I look for structure. I look for um, lyrical content if it's a song for the church you look for obviously theological content Mm -hmm. you look for language you try not to see things that rhyme just for the sake of rhyming so you want to see a little bit of intellect a bit of poetry but also it has to has to do the job you want to come to the end of that song and be inspired influenced delighted enjoyed you want to go back to it or you think wow that's a really i could I could do that. I could yeah. sing that somewhere. So there's lots of different criteria. Um, I find that a lot of songs people send me meander. Mm. I think I'm always against the meandering song because you do, you get to the end and you feel totally lost and baffled. Um, so it isn't being um, suffocated by structure, but I think you have to be honourable of structure. Mm. I think the other thing I find difficult and I find in a lot of songs is the mix of tenses. So in the verse, you're singing to you. Yeah. And in the chorus, you're singing to them. Yeah. So 
you know, like a song about Jesus, is are you singing to Jesus or are you singing from Jesus? So I find mixed tenses happen a lot, and that that actually really kind of winds me up. Yeah, because I think if if you read your song like a story, then you you should notice. Yeah. So I guess it's all that criteria, but at the end of the day, my my aim is to always encourage. Yeah. So I've kind of hope that I can critique and give value comments. Yeah. And are you able to respond to people who, you know, if you get an avalanche of stuff, do you manage to respond to everyone? Yeah, or you just, I do. I that's do. amazing. That's very impressive, I think. I do. And sometimes you it's really hard. You must be careful because you're now saying this oh. on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I do manage yeah. to. Maybe it's not as quick as that person likes. Yeah. And sometimes people are really inspired by it. I'm working with um, a songwriter quite local to where I live. And uh, he, he went back into the studio and started to re-vocal okay. just some of the trouble, trouble lines. Yeah. And I'm thinking, that's great. I didn't ask him to do that. Yeah. But just through conversation and critique and hopefully encouragement, he felt, yeah, I, I agree. I, I see that. So they went back and re-vocaled. But then I've always done that. My, my songs have always been critiqued. I have yeah. some friends who I co-write with. And so it's, I know how hard it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I still know how hard it is. So I think as long as I know how hard it is, I can appreciate how hard it is for others as well. Yeah. Um, but I think there are the trouble spots. I think meandering's a trouble spot. Yeah. Mixed tenses is a trouble spot. Lack, total lack of format is a trouble spot. And copying is a trouble spot. Yeah. It's good to be influenced, but, you know, I go places and the song sounds like, you know, Hill Jesus song culture. Yeah. That's what I call the mix between <laughs> Hill song and Jesus culture. Yeah. And already it's like, okay. It's that sort of derivative, isn't it? That's, it's a difference yeah. between inspired or take, you know, taking, taking, starting from there, mm. but just mm. aping, mimicking. Yeah. And you, we all get influenced. Yeah. I understand that. But sometimes we copy so much uh, that people just become bored. So do you sometimes get something you think, wow, that's fresh. That's actually, you know, that's taking me somewhere new. Yes, yes. And that must be, the, those are the good times, I'm sure. Yes, and when, when I see those people, um, we're working with a, a, a worship leader and songwriter called Tom McConnell. Oh, he I know Tom. Leads, yeah. He leads worship in a church in London. It's my old church. Oh, there right. Yeah. How fascinating. And when I heard some of his songs, there was just something about them Brilliant. that was like, I really like that. So we're kind of working alongside him, encouraging him. Great. And, and Song Solutions is a, a great publishing company that's part of Memory Life. Yeah. And, and so for people like Tom, for other people, it's not that we want to publish your songs and own them for the rest of your life. We actually have got an administrative deal whereby we do the admin and okay. we build up a partnership. Yeah. And we're finding we're taking a lot of people's catalogues because we're working with them, still giving them a form of ownership yeah. but taking away the admin because actually we've got the people in the the, the software who can yeah. who can do that very well so that's that's relational yeah um, it's always worth sending songs in and you just never know there just might be something that yeah. you just go i really like that yeah so so what tom's good at is i'm kind of putting a fresh take on old hymns yeah now, a lot of people do that, but there was just something fresh about what he did. Yeah. And having met him, you then resonate with that person and with that heart. So that's always really encouraging when you, when you meet people like that. Yeah, brilliant. 
Yeah. You mentioned the um, you mentioned Spring Harvest and um, the Spring Harvest songbook, and, I, and for years now. I don't know how many years it is, but for years, the Spring Harvest Songbook has been the sort of, if you like, it's like the snapshot of the of the worship culture of the UK year by year. And you can go mm-hmm. back through it and you can just see oh, how yeah. things develop and what were the big songs and, and so on. Um, and I know that you're, you've are you been involved in that in that process for, for some time and, you know, taking seriously, like you said, listening to the songs and, and so on. And I guess what you'll have seen by doing that over a period of time is, is um, the way that in particular years, you must get lots of songs of a certain style or lots of a certain theme. I mean, what in the, I guess what's in vogue at the moment and what do you oh. see therefore is lacking as a result? That's a good question. Um, I have been involved in it for many years, either by submitting songs and still submitting songs (laughs) and being in the songbook to using the songbook to now um, a lot of my role with the team, a great team, is we take in songs around September time, new songs, songs that are sent to us from record companies, independent songwriters. And I probably listen to about 500 songs. Amazing. And normally it's kind of like October time and I'm often in Norway about that time, weirdly enough. So the, the amount of time I've sat... In a in a in a place in in Norway in Olesen amongst the mountains with headphones on listening for hours to songs and looking at lyrics and trying to make some yeah. assessment and because it's for an event and it's for a songbook that's my criteria so some songs which are very good just might not fit into that because there's only sixty now sixty songs yeah. in the songbook and that's less that's, that's fewer than yes. once upon a time yeah, isn't it because because yeah. the time involved and the money involved. The songbook of 200 is huge. Yeah. So we tend to take 60 new songs that have been written maybe in the last year or two, uh, and we do a new song CD. But it's very much to equip the Spring Harvest event yeah. and conferences and stages. So you'll find less performance. Um, and I use that in a positive way, you know, not a negative way. Songs that people can sing over crowds, songs that you can have individually. It's less of that. Yeah. It is more of the congregational church conference crowd effect songs. So there's a definite criteria. Um, yes, I do see trends. Like um, some years you just have very slow songs. Yeah. And, and you're hunting. And we're still hunting around for really good upbeat songs. Yeah. And then I think this year there were kind of a lot of medium cook songs, you know, um, still again looking for the faster songs. Um, themes, we always look to work into the gaps. So we still need, I think, more songs about family, more songs about um, justice. I think we do need more songs about lament. Yeah. Um, I think also we need less songs that have the octave jump. Right. Now, yeah. obviously... Uh, you know, the, the whole kind of Coldplay era, um, you get a lot of that. And, and they tend to be written, and again, no edge, this is just observation, by men. Yeah. Because you've got that kind of Coldplay yeah. effect. So men can grumble a little bit in the verse, like in their lower regions. Yeah. And then in the chorus, they can then do the high. Yeah. Now, when a girl takes that song, you have to switch it on its head sometimes, change the key. And then sometimes you find you're singing higher in the verse than in the chorus. Yeah. Because you have to then go down. Because you've had to sort of find a middle yeah. point somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And so, or you have to just find a, a key that kind of you're all right in, in both. But yeah. it is a little bit of a, a job search. 
to find the right key to do these songs. Yeah. But actually, they can be unsingable. And they can be pretty unmemorable tune-wise because it's the octave they rely, jump. That's the device, isn't it? it? That's the hook. on that. Yeah. So I think we need less of those, yeah. really. And we need more songs. And I'm not saying this because I'm a female, but we do need... It's improving, yeah. but we still need to see more female songwriters and more female songwriters songwriting together. Yep. So instead of five or six names of men writing songs, yeah. uh, you've got four or five names of women writing songs together. So we still need more of that. So that's not really happening? The, no, not... For some it, reason. It's, it's better. Yeah. No, there's still a lack, And I is believe. that? Do you think... Is that partly because... Are women having to kind of still forge a kind of personal identity or something where, which kind of stops that that collaboration? Is it? Yeah, I think we're still paying catch up. Yeah. Really, I think, uh, you know, we're looking at a whole culture of, of church and music, and and I think we're still on that, on that catch up. Yeah. Of seeing women released, and women appreciated, and women feeling that they can. And being treated seriously, and just having those relationships and those door openers. Yeah. Um, and I think being a door opener is, and I, I hope, I hope that's kind of in some measure what I do. Yeah. Because, because historically you've got a very male culture in church, and church music maybe, men open doors for other men, yeah. you know, because of lots of lots of reasons. So I think we are looking for door openers that actually open the doors for the very gifted women out mm. there who feel approved of, they feel affirmed, and they feel serious about their gifting, that they can. So it's definitely improved. And they might, presumably, they might write songs that have a different character, mm-hmm. but yes. then that sort of gets ignored because it doesn't fit mm. into the mould. And They write and less octave jump songs. <laughs> yes. Which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And for a lot more um, female worship leaders in, in the more regional area, not maybe nationally or internationally, you find they take the songs and you don't have to change the key. Or if you do, it's because you want to make it more applicable to your congregation. Yeah. So it, there's still a long way to go. But that's but about it the has key, improved. not the range, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. And I know I, I bumped into you a couple of weeks ago and you were um, just arriving at, in, where were we, Minehead, Spring yes. Harvest, because um, you, you were kind of keeping in touch with what's happening with the, with the Spring Harvest live album in mind. And I'm quite fascinated, mm. I'm sure some of our listeners are, about how, how you strike that balance between aiming for a live album at the end of an event, but giving worship leaders the freedom to just lead mm. worship. Mm. And, and meanwhile, you're probably thinking, oh, please just stop there because you've got a perfect take. Oh, no, they've gone off somewhere else. How do you, Can you do it again tonight? What is that please? balance yeah. like? And I, and I know you've been on both ends of that. So how, yeah. does that, how does that work? Well, it is a little bit of a dance because I think for a worship leader and for worship teams, you have to be multitaskers. People say, so what are the gifts of being a worship leader? So they always think, well, that you can play, that you can sing, that you can. But I think actually we are multitaskers. And we are connectors. And you normally find the best worship leaders or song leaders are those that can multitask. Because you've got three or four or five things going on at once. You know, you've got your band, you've got yourself, you've got the words, you've got the leadership, you've got the people, you've got God, you've got the Holy Mm. Spirit. You're connecting seven or eight different things together. So it's very much like that on the live worship album. You have a worship team who are there to serve the event, but they're also there to serve the people coming to the event. 
They're there to serve the kind of theme that's been really carefully planned and prayed for over the year. You're there to serve those that speak, but also you're there to um, be recorded mm. and have an album which really is a, like a flagship album, a live worship album, that mirrors the event, but also it has the things like um, we don't like to put the same songs on it that we had on last year mm. or the year before. So we don't want a song repeated two to three years. So you have to find new, newer songs. So you've got all these little boxes and at the same time, you just want the band and the worship team to feel relaxed. Yeah. But in, in the older days, uh, there was a mobile recording van that used to just visit all the sites for two nights. That's even that more it. pressure. Because yeah. you think, oh no, the recording van's come tonight. It's, got, it's tonight or never. But now, um, because of technology and because of increased yeah. understanding, we record every night at every site. So that takes the pressure off. Yeah. And I come along and listen, and then you look at the songs, and you know, just conversationally, you kind of talk to the worship leaders, the, the chooser of the songs, and say, this works really well. Will you be doing it again? Rather than make them feel that they've just got to, you know, that the, the producer of the album becomes the song leader. Yeah. You don't want that. You don't want, you know... And that could easily happen because we could go and say, well, we need this, 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 and this song. Yeah. And you've got to do it tonight. Otherwise and I'm presuming, however, however nicely you ask, they could feel like you're saying, yeah. you must do that song. Yeah. Because they have these other things to tick. Yeah. Leadership. Yeah. Meeting. The plan of the evening. So it's all done in relationship. Hopefully it's done with understanding. Yeah. And we can guide it. And we've literally just come back from the event and listened through to all the songs and kind of made an initial list. But yes, it's, it, it's, it's a very interesting one. Yeah, well, I mean, what do you do then? Because I, I, I suppose, I think I'm right to say you take them away, and actually, there's a fair bit of it you have to say, we're going to have to re-record that guitar, we'll have to re-record that. How, how much do you re-record? Or is that, a kind oh, of, is that an industry that's secret? That's a trade is secret. It, is it? I mean... How live is yeah. live? <laughs> yeah, um, it used to be that whatever was taken on the night is, is what it is. Yeah. That is absolutely live, but it might not always be great to listen to because yeah. the whole standard of technology and recording and live events, the whole understanding of even a live event changes. It's changed our palette, hasn't it, I think, over yes. the years. So, so it changes yeah. the demands. Yeah. So if, if we put out an absolutely live album, yeah. people would come back and they go, well, it's not as good as <laughs> yeah. Soul Survivor. It's not as good as Jesus Culture Live because you have to see what you're being compared with. Yeah. So you kind of just have to be sensitive, sensible, but still know what do the listeners want to hear. Yeah. You know, they don't want to hear um, a worship leader whose voice is gone because of a, a viral infection. Even though that's live. Yeah. Can't hit the notes, can only sing, you know, below their kind of sub-zero yeah. key. Uh, so you have to re-vocal. And that, that's not dishonest. It's actually just getting the best out of the people yeah. and giving, giving you an, a live album that people can listen to, but still reflects the event. Yeah. And that's what it's a sort of, it, I've always thought that those live albums, they give you something to take away, which lets, you know, all that God's been doing in and with you during that time just keeps mm -hmm. on resonating when you listen. Yeah. And it's part, songs are such a good way of capturing a snapshot of something, aren't they? And, mm, and taking yes. you back there. Music yes. takes you back. So, yeah, I can yeah. totally see that. 
And people love to hear the crowd. Yeah. So, so you know, you obviously mic up the crowd and those songs people love because it's you just hear the kind of great gusto of voices behind the song yeah. and you think, wow, you know, these people are really expressing some some desire, some prayer. Yeah, and these songs, they're designed to be sung together, aren't they? So actually the sound of a live album compared to a studio album, it's the songs come alive, don't they? That's where they belong. That's where yes. that's what they were inte- always intended for. Yeah, so you should never judge or compare a live album with a really intricate uh, studio album by, I don't know, Gungor. Or, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Very artistic. Yeah. Very, you, you, can't, you can't compare them, but you can appreciate both of them. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes we're, we're a bit consumerist like that don't like that why isn't that like that why doesn't she sound like him why can't we just embrace diversity mm. and like it all I, I, I never understand that <laughs> why everything has to sound the same yeah let's why bring, can't we just like it all let's let's bring, bring it back to um just to back to your songwriting um and I know, I'm sure I've seen you described somewhere as one of the least prolific um, but influential <laughs> songwriters. You know, there's a long time sometimes between albums and I'm sure you're, you're busy doing things. Well, just tell us a little bit about your songwriting process. Whether there's something you're kind of working on at the moment or, or how you get a song from its conception through to its completion. Yeah, I benefit or I don't benefit from being a generalist. That, that's what I juggle with. So my whole focus isn't just writing songs. You know, I do a lot of speaking. I, you know, obviously work for different, um, you know, for the record company. I travel a lot. I speak a lot. There's so many different things I do that I'm a generalist. So I don't just write songs. So sometimes it's hard for me to find the right time. I'm also a bit of a procrastinator. Many people will probably (laughs) recognize themselves in this. And I'm a procrastinator that says it's not the right time yet. I'm always looking for the right time, the right moment, the right nuance, the right... But really, you have to make it. You have to make the right time. So I battle with myself a little bit. And also I've got lots of half-baked ideas. Mm. You know, lines in a book, lines on my iPad, um, scribbled notes, lots of voice messages on my iPhone... Lots of bits that I think, wow, that could be really... But then I go off and do something else. Write an article for a magazine. I go off to India. I go off to America. It's like... And then I think, what was that idea? So many people are probably like me. And so, you know, you're just you're just battling sometimes mm. with these things. But yes, the other thing is I don't want to just get on a conveyor belt and do an album every two years. So yes, I wait to do an album. So I've just released a new one called Ethos that I've done independently. And for me, it really has been a work of art. So everything is very controlled. It's like the cello solo's there, not just because it's a space to be filled, because it's a song that needs that cello solo. The lyrics I think about, and even when I'm recording it, you know, my producer says, oh, that's a bit cliche. Can you think of something else? Yeah. And two days could go by and I'm going, still haven't thought of anything else. And then she says, well, what about this? And I'm going, that's it, perfect. So... Because it's an independent album, I have the luxury of time. Yeah. But then what what comes out is something that I'm just so pleased about because it's a work of art uh, to me. So I tick my boxes and then people listen to it and go, this is different. Yeah. And, and I think it is different. Um, and sometimes being different is great. Being true to yourself is great. But also not fitting in 
is sometimes hard. So you, you live with that dilemma, you know, of being eclectic, but actually people want to brand you. Yeah. Of um, having variety, but actually sometimes people just want to know what they can get from you. So I think I've always walked that line. I always will. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't like boxes, but a lot of people do like boxes because they can, they can box you, they can label you, they can identify you, and you fit. But what happens for all of us that actually just don't fit? Mm. What about all us, all us people that don't actually fit a box? What do we do? Do we just give up through disappointment? Do we give up because we're not like that person? Do we give up because we're not valued? Or do we somehow stay true to ourselves and true to, as you become known by God, true to who God has made you to be and to develop into and just walk your path? And I guess that's always been my challenge, hmm. if that makes sense. It's brilliant. Sue, thank you. And thanks so much for talking to us. We've got, I've got one final question, uh-huh. and it's one that we ask all of our interviewees. Um, and it is this. Um, if we could go back and rewrite songwriting history, and you could pick one song by someone else that you would love to have written, what would you choose? What song by somebody else do you think, oh, I mm. wish I could have written that? Oh, goodness. I always go back to um, the people that first influenced me, yeah. really. Um, okay, people like Annie Lennox. I mean, I've just been such a fan of her. Yeah. Always. In fact, I started, and this is the whole thing of copy and influence. I copied, I used to copy her 100%. I knew all her ad libs. I knew everything. And then people would come out and go, being led in worship by Sue's a bit like having Annie Lennox <laughs> and I thought oh I've gone too far so I had to pull myself away from that yeah. vortex uh, but I think sisters are doing it for themselves oh wonderful I think that is just a full on song that has great content but also it's a victorious song as well and her and Aretha Franklin I mean two vocal greats yeah yeah I guess I guess it would be a song like that brilliant that's great. It's a great. We're building up a little set of. Um, so we had uh, um, we had the Weeks brothers on recently, oh, yeah. Matt and Dan, and um, Dan wanted four A's Requiem, which I thought was very, oh yeah, very brave of him. Whereas Matt very. went Matt went much more. Well, he wanted Humble King by Brenton Brown, which brought you. I thought it was a much more humble choice. But it is. <laughs> it's much more that we in the pocket, to. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's Funny, right. isn't it? And now I do sisters are doing it for themselves. Not in a militant way, but in a very, it was a very victorious way. Yeah. Just, come on, let's, let's grab it and let's go. Oh, that's wonderful. So thanks so much for talking to us. It's, it's been a pleasure. a pleasure to have you on. Great. Thank you very much. Sam and I will be back with episode 13 at the beginning of May, where, among other things, we'll be reviewing the 12-song challenge for April, which was all about Eastertide songs. In the meantime, do get in touch with us on email, podcast at resoundworship.org, facebook.com slash resoundworship.org, or Twitter at resoundworship. And as a featured song, this time we're going to break with tradition and we're going to use a song from our interviewee. So this is King of Compassion by Sue Rinaldi and Caroline Bonnet. See you next time. Wait.